This episode contains the seeds of its own creation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Beyond podcast, the podcast that is also questing for the essence of mind and pattern. This is a podcast for anyone who knows exactly what's inside a box, only by the information inscribed on the surface of its boundary. Hi folks, welcome back. My name is Vadim and I'll be your host again. Welcome to the podcast that discusses meta-concepts. In this episode, I want to start with a fun hobby and connect it up to a meta-topic and also discuss a couple of books along the way. How does that sound? All right, so over the last few months, I've been corresponding with a couple of listeners who've been encouraging me to get into the hobby of 3D printing. You've got mail. (sighs) It's not spam. Specifically, we have listener Dan in Tokyo and listener Arthur in Prague. Now, this is something that I actually wanted to try for a while. And uh, having finally cleared some space in the garage, I bought a 3D printer and started playing around with it. Now, the technology is impressive considering the fact that you're buying basically an affordable consumer device. And like most people who have used or even just thought about the concept of printed objects... I started wondering about the uh, broader implications. Now, one of the listeners, Arthur, uh, shared a video from his tour of a 3D printer factory located in his city. There were racks upon racks of 3D printers uh, busily printing something. Workers were coming by to collect the printed objects. It turns out that the printers were printing parts to make more 3D printers. The printers themselves were made, at least in part from parts printed by other 3D printers. Mirrors reflecting mirrors! High-tech sorcery! Sorcery, I say! Now, in this kind of setup, would it be weird to refer to those earlier printers as ancestors of the more recent ones? Well, that's probably an imprecise analogy, but let's think more about this. So let's start with some piece of technology. Uh, It really doesn't matter what. Maybe it's a 3D printer or a kitchen appliance like a toaster. So let's grab some space in a very large and initially empty warehouse and put our toaster on the floor right in the middle. Now let's consider all the manufacturing equipment that went into making of the toaster. There had been machines that cut and bent the casing and other metal components. Other machines molded the plastic pieces. Let's get each one of these machines and arrange it in the warehouse around the toaster. Now, there was probably some machine that made the little spring that pops the toast up when the desired temperature is reached. And there was probably another machine that made the components of the heat sensor. Something else manufactured all the wiring. Uh, Yet another piece of equipment helped make the electromagnet that acts against the spring while the bread is toasting. Again, let's gather up all these machines and put them in the warehouse. Let's not worry about how much space this will all take up. Pretend the warehouse is just very, very large. Now that we're done with the machinery that manufactured the components of the toaster, we're ready to take the next step. Let's take each one of these machines and repeat the process recursively. For example, the piece of manufacturing equipment that can make an electromagnet. How does it work? And I don't want to talk to a scientist. Well, we can do some reverse engineering and again enumerate all the parts. And for each part, we can figure out what went into manufacturing it. And so we bring more and more equipment and tooling into our warehouse. And then we repeat this process again and again. And we can either go breadth first or depth first. Either way, we can make progress towards building up the full set of toaster dependencies. Now a question arises, 
is this going to be a finite set? It's certainly a countable set. We can assign some label, like an integer, to each piece of equipment that we bring into the warehouse. But will our process ever terminate? Now, you could probably already intuit the answer to that. But before we discuss it further, let's talk about the knowledge that we're accumulating while we're filling up the warehouse. As we break down our toaster, and then in turn all the machines that built up the toaster, we're gathering up more and more items. What if we do just a little bit more bookkeeping and keep track of what depends on what? It can be as simple as drawing some uh, lines on the floor. The lines can also have little arrowheads so we don't mix up the direction of the dependency. So for example, there will be an arrow from the wire cutting machine to the toaster. And there'll be another, another arrow from a machine that makes a blade that goes into the wire cutter to the wire cutter itself, and so on. So initially, we were making a set, but now we're building a graph. The nodes or vertices of our graph are the various machines and tools. Taken alone, these are exactly the same as the set that we've been discussing. The arrows that we drew on the floor are the directed edges of our graph. They remind us what is required to build what. If you like video games, this may remind you of like a tech tree or a technology tree. Not enough minerals. The game makes you build something relatively simple, like an ore extractor, before you can manufacture something more complicated. And then once you build some factory, you could do more advanced things and so on and so on. Of course, such technology trees in games are inspired by technology trees in the real world, which is exactly what I'm after with this toaster-centric warehouse. So back to our set. Is it finite? Will we at some point end up at a place where we throw in one last screwdriver and then we don't need to add any more machinery? Furthermore, what kind of graph are we building? For example, we know it's a directed graph, but is it allowed to have cycles? What would it even mean to have a cycle? Would it create a paradox of some kind? Let's start with the cardinality or the size of our set. I believe it would be a finite set. Why? Well, simply because toasters exist. And the machines and knowledge on how to build toasters has existed for a finite amount of time, as has the universe in which we live and enjoy our toast. Cocky Toaster, your chirpy breakfast companion. Cocky's the name, toasting's the game. And also there is a finite amount of machines and resources on the planet where we make toasters. That means that the process of gathering up all the required equipment must end at some point. Now, before we jump into the implications of filling up our warehouse this way, let's talk about some of the sort of hand-wavy cheats in the discussion so far. Now, sure, we've made a list of all the machines and the machines required to build those machines and so on. Well, what about assembly? What about design? Maybe some of the assembly is done by other machines. We can certainly include those machines as well and then enumerate their dependencies using the same algorithm. What about the parts of the process that are done by humans? Actually, let's put a pin in that for now and talk about raw resources. Like, where did the metals and plastics and other materials for building the toaster and building the toaster building machines come from? Well, we can make a dependency graph for the materials as well and ultimately trace them to raw resources found on Earth. How were those resources collected? Again, this might have been done by machines, like the mining equipment and so on which means we can give those machines the same treatment. It gets kind of tricky when our set starts to include materials produced by biological processes. Like how do we account for things like oil or silk or cellulose 
and everything else that's a direct or indirect product of plant and animal life. And the same issue comes up when we consider the parts of the manufacturing process that still require human input for assembly, transportation, repair, and so on. If you add a human to the dependency graph, where do you go from there? We need humans to make humans, so that immediately introduces a cycle to the graph. It's a conundrum! I want to talk about cycles some more, but first let's talk about humans. Do we bootstrap our warehouse with enough humans and the resources required to keep those humans alive? Or do we somehow backtrack through the evolution of our species by adding human ancestors and the ancestors of ancestors and so on until we end up with some kind of primordial soup filled with amino acids? The building blocks of what we call life. Strange, isn't it? Everything we know, our entire civilization, it all begins right here in this little pond of goo. This is you. I'm serious. Right here. Life is about to form on this planet for the very first time. So let's get around this complexity by adding two simplifying assumptions to our tech tree. Let's assume that any raw materials required to build our machines could be obtained directly from the environment or synthesized from other non-biological materials. This lets us paper over needing plant and animal products. Let's also assume that all assembly tasks, as well as all other labor required to move materials and products and so on, could also be automated. So we just end up with more machines and their transitive but non-biological dependencies. That way the entire graph consists of edges between machines and tools and basic ores and minerals. So is this simplification really necessary? Could we instead bootstrap the entire process by including humans and plants and animals? Well, maybe that would work, provided that we also include the dependencies required for their continual survival and procreation. So we'd have to like pull in a big chunk of the Earth's food chain in as well. And at this point, our warehouse could be the size of a continent, and I just can't afford the rent on something that big. Hence the head and wavy cheat of limiting our tech tree to just non-biological machines and such. And what about the cycles in the graph? Do they present a paradox? Well, not necessarily. This exercise is not about causal time relationships, like which machine was invented before another machine. It's more about what is needed to make what. So it's totally reasonable to include a thingamajig that makes parts used in its own construction because it satisfies its own dependency requirements. Just like we could bootstrap the process by including humans and plants, as long as we include their food sources as well. It doesn't matter how these things evolved historically, it only matters that there are no external dependencies other than the raw resources that are not already in our warehouse. And of course I'm just choosing to pretend that we don't need humans and biology to make this simpler, and I guess it's time to admit that our tech tree is not a real tree in the graph theory sense. It is now a directed graph, but not a directed acyclic graph. It's all lies, but they're entertaining lies. And in the end, isn't that the real truth? Minor but important detail there. But what was the point of the tech tree in the first place? By the way, the word tree is now in quotes. Well, if we've gathered all the machines and all their transitive precursors and inputs in one warehouse, that means that we can manufacture another toaster. Great. But it goes beyond that. We could also manufacture any of the prerequisites of toaster building. We can make the machine that makes the bread tray in the toaster. We can make the machines that make the machine that make the bread tray in the toaster. 
In fact, by construction, we could duplicate anything in the warehouse using just what we already have in the warehouse. Of course, we require some raw resources, but they can be obtained from the surrounding environment using just the machinery on hand. In fact, we can rent a second warehouse of the same size as our original warehouse and then systematically produce everything that exists in the first warehouse and place it in the new warehouse. When we're done, the two buildings will have identical contents, so the exercise could be repeated again from either warehouse. But why start with a toaster? Why not something that's a little bit more directly involved in manufacturing? Well, at the end of the day, it actually doesn't matter. Any manufactured object could be used as the initial seed for building the dependency graph. The point is that by expanding the graph, we end up with a finite set of things that collectively can be used to make a copy of themselves. So now that we've gone through this thought experiment, I want to know the following. What is the smallest set of equipment that we can build that has sufficient components to make a copy of itself. Another way of approaching this may be to ask, when will we have a device that is like a 3D printer, but one which can create all of the parts required to make another copy of itself? And as a follow-up, what if such a device was capable of assembly as well? What if it could also harvest the input materials required to duplicate itself? In short, I want to know, when will we see von Neumann machines? Before we discuss these in greater detail, I want to pause for a moment and discuss a book that I really enjoyed a few years ago on the subject of toasters. No one around here wants any toast. Not now. Not ever. Well, not really toasters specifically, but more like, how would you build a useful appliance if civilization had to restart from scratch? Like, let's say, in case of a zombie apocalypse or something more mundane like a pandemic. I'm talking about Louis Dartnell's The Knowledge, how to rebuild our world from scratch. This book was published in 2014, and in some countries, the book was published under the title The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Civilization in the Aftermath of a Cataclysm. Either way, you get the gist. So the idea is there's some global catastrophe and civilization as we know it is gone. But it's not like everything just disappears. There are still cars and factories and power plants and so on. It's just that there is almost no one left around to operate them. So in this hypothetical situation, what happens? What can survivors do in the short term to stay alive? And from there, can a technological civilization be quickly rebuilt? And by quickly, the book means just in a few generations, but not like many centuries. The book looks closely at tech trees and also historical examples from around the world where people have been cut off from civilization in this way, either through natural disasters or war and so on. There are some fascinating examples of innovative ways of repurposing technology for short-term survival. For example, a car alternator combined with a makeshift water wheel can generate electricity from a river current. Or you can construct a windmill to drive an alternator, same idea. And you don't have to build an alternator from scratch, there'll be plenty around in abandoned cars. The book goes through many such examples, and the conclusion is that if the survivors are clever and persistent, humanity need not go back to the Stone Age, but instead can bootstrap their way back to an advanced society in fairly short order. And speaking of toasters, uh, around the same time as Dartnell's book was published, there was another man from the UK, a designer named Thomas Thwaites, who embarked on a related project of actually building a functional toaster from scratch. 
The project resulted in a bunch of television interviews and even a TED talk. I highly encourage you to see the final product for yourself. Uh, the conclusion was that it takes an entire civilization to build a toaster, or in our thought experiment, a really big warehouse. But seriously, find a picture of the toaster that he built, it's kind of hilarious. And as for Louis Dartnell's book, while it was a very fun and interesting read, I was able to see the author speak at a public engagement and I found his insights on what to do in a zombie apocalypse to be very well thought out and very compelling. Okay, so back to von Neumann machines. There are a couple of related concepts that use this term. Uh, one comes from the field of cellular automation. This is a field that we covered back in episode two. In this context, the von Neumann machine is a universal constructor, a machine implemented in the rules of cellular automation, which can assemble and reproduce a copy of itself. And there are some really fascinating extensions to this idea that allow for mutations and evolution. The other notion of von Neumann machines is something like a space-traveling robotic probe that can automatically collect a bunch of resources and then manufacture and assemble a copy of itself. That is the idea that I want to focus on. So, although the idea came out of a serious academic discussion, when I think about it, it feels straight-up sci-fi. Like, what do you picture when you think of self-replicating machines? Let's imagine a simpler case where they're not capable of space travel, but can spread on their home planet. Maybe on our home planet. Wait a minute. Statue of Liberty. That was our planet! You maniacs! You blew it up! Damn you! Do you picture large robotic contraptions, or are you thinking more like nanomachines from the Grey Goose scenarios? Or maybe you think that life is a kind of a naturally evolved von Neumann machine. What about the ultimate kind of von Neumann probe that can travel through the galaxy and harvest everything it needs from planets and asteroids and whatever other kind of matter that it can get its hands on, not only to survive but to repair itself and to make exact copies? Things get more fun when the copies can mutate, with their design and programming changing over generations. Obviously, we don't have anything artificial, at least not yet, that could do this even without the space travel requirement. So how do we go from a huge warehouse full of assorted technology to a self-contained von Neumann probe? So let's explore the basic requirements. Here we can lean on some of the core concepts from the original description of the universal constructor, although one can also come up with the same requirements just from first principles. There needs to be some means of manufacturing so that components of a new machine could be built. There needs to be an assembler to put those parts together into an exact, or close enough, replica of the original. And there needs to be some mechanism to control the entire process, most likely some kind of digital computer. This computer would be running a program that can control the manufacture and assembly in addition to other functions. And of course there has to be some way to copy this program into the clone. So this program, whatever form it takes, will have two functions. One as a program, in the sense of executable instructions, and one as a template, in the sense of data or blueprint, that can be copied verbatim. Does this remind you of anything? Doesn't this sound a lot like DNA? This is something that we discussed in detail in the second half of episode one. The duality and the meta-ness of DNA would necessarily have to be replicated, no pun intended, somewhere in the von Neumann probe. But when you start listing all the requirements like a bullet point list, it may inadvertently make the problem seem far simpler than it actually is. And in reality, it's very wonderfully loopy, 
in that way that all great meta concepts are. For example, the manufacturing component of the probe, what does it need to be able to create? Well, obviously all the parts needed to make itself, at a minimum anyway. But what are those parts? Well, those are exactly the components of a machine that is capable of manufacturing things. What things? The parts that make up the machine. You see where this is going. And of course it's not just making the parts, it's also assembling them. And of course some part of this contraption has to know how to extract resources from the environment. And did somebody say something about space propulsion? Oh, and all the advanced sensing equipment that the probe would need to be aware of its environment and its place in the universe? And the computer hardware to control these processes? Pretty twisty, right? Seems rather complicated to build such a thing, but not impossible. Tell me what you think about the following approach. Instead of trying to build a von Neumann probe directly, what if instead we build a really good replicator, but not in the Star Trek sense? Here's what I have in mind. Let's say we could build a device that had sufficient sensors where it could examine and reverse engineer any other device that you present to it. Like you put a toaster in front of it and our replicator scans the toaster every which way using x-rays or neutrinos or whatever physically plausible way that it wants. It can even slice up the toaster using lasers or disassemble it some other way. Once it figures out the parts and their composition, it will replicate them through something like a 3D printer, albeit more versatile than the current consumer devices. Finally, it assembles all the pieces of the toaster together from the memory of the original scan. Now let's say we add some long-term memory to this replicator so that it always remembers how to make the same toaster without having to scan and disassemble another toaster as a template. So far so good? Oh, does that confuse you? Okay, now let's say we built two such replicators. If we can get one of these to work, surely we can do it again. Now, and you probably already see where this is going, we ask one of the replicators to scan and replicate the other one while recording the process in its long-term memory. From the replicator's point of view, there is nothing special about applying its skills to another replicator. Gosh, I'm already anthropomorphizing these. It might as well be a waffle iron. Once we're done, our replicator has now learned how to build a replicator and committed those steps to memory. Now it can produce a copy of itself without having to scan one for reference. So did we succeed? Is that all it takes? Well, obviously all the complexity is still there. We just used a quining trick as a way of maybe wrapping our head around the whole process. Do you remember quines? We talked a lot about them back in episode one. These are computer programs that emit their own source code. At first glance, constructing such programs might seem like a futile exercise involving some kind of infinite cognitive loop. And yet when you approach the problem by recognizing that something can act as both an agent or a template, depending on the context, creating a quine becomes quite straightforward. And although practical, functional von Neumann probes in the real world would be much, much more complex, I suspect there will be some conceptual similarity in how such probes could be bootstrapped into existence. However, technical challenges remain. None of this is meant to be easy, but there's also nothing inherently physical preventing such machines from coming into existence. After all, biological life did this through pure chance. It's also worth mentioning that a von Neumann probe doesn't actually have to be literally one physical device with all its parts connected together. The warehouse of machines approach is acceptable as long as collectively all of these machines 
meet the criteria of self-replication. So I wanted to take a look at an academic paper on the subject to see what the experts have to say. So let's take a look at a paper from back in 2002, published in the IEEE Journal of Transactions on Mechatronics. This is a paper by Chirikshian, Zhu, and Suthakorn, and it's titled Self-Replicating Robots for Lunar Development. The idea is this. The moon contains a ton of resources that can be turned into useful things like machines and solar panels. Sending manufacturing equipment to the moon is expensive. So what if instead we sent up a minimal factory that had just the essential parts for self-replication? The initial setup would consist of multifunctional robots capable of mining lunar resources. The robots would also have manipulators capable of assembling a copy of the robot from manufactured parts. Additionally, the setup calls for a materials refining and casting facility, uh, photovoltaics to power everything, and finally rail guns for long distance transportation on the moon or for shooting things back to low Earth orbit. As far as self-replication goes, the rail guns are going to be used for shooting a kind of a starter pack to other places on the moon, such that a new factory could be set up from the initial minimal components. This way, the copies of the factory can spread all around the moon without the need for extra materials or extra equipment being sent from Earth. And of course, in addition to self-replication, the idea is that these factories would have surplus output that could be sent back to Earth. These could be raw materials extracted from the moon or energy collected from solar panels. So these robots need to be able to extract materials, uh, build the refining facility, manufacture solar cells, build rail guns, and then assemble all these things to create a minimal deployment that can be rail gun launched somewhere else on the moon so that the process could repeat. And of course, this process can be repeated at each site multiple times, leading to an exponential spread of these factories all over the moon's surface. But what about intelligence? And a corrupt government of incompetent robot elders. Uh, that's for sure. Are we sidestepping the complexities of manufacturing computer processors in a self-replicating way? Well, actually, here the authors of the paper propose a different approach. Instead of having the robots powered by modern microprocessors, they suggest using very simple electronic components like relays and even vacuum tubes. And I actually didn't realize that in the relative vacuum of a place like the moon's surface, vacuum tubes don't actually need to be literal glass tubes. They can just be open components. It's very clever. The authors cite several earlier papers that demonstrated how complex robot behavior can be achieved from relatively simple electronics. So no need to ship and manufacture like an ARM processor or whatever on the moon. The paper also presents several prototypes built from Lego Mindstorm kits, where small robots could semi-autonomously assemble components to create copies of themselves. Those must have been fun to build for this research paper. Now, going back to the intelligence considerations, I had always imagined that von Neumann probes would necessarily have to have very sophisticated computers and software to do what they do. The authors of the Lunar Robots paper reference the reproduction of bacteria and viruses, which happens without any quote-unquote intelligent input. The hope is that lunar factories could similarly self-replicate and do what they need to do with just minimal electronics powering the thinking processes. 
Now, one thought I had when reading the paper was maybe that it wouldn't be such a bad idea to compromise on the von Neumann ideal of true self-replication. What if we did send the initial robots with microprocessors, including a batch of spare processors to be sent along with the railgun payloads? Since these processors would be a limited resource, they would present the ultimate limit in how many replicas of the factory could be produced. Ultimately, every processor would be used up, and since the robots are not capable of replicating these, the spread of factories would have to end. Then the people in charge of the program can decide if and when to send another payload of processors to the moon to enable further replication. The advantage of this is that it's probably easier to build and program self-replicating robots with general-purpose hardware and software. And another advantage is this introduces a degree of control to prevent some kind of hypothetical runaway scenario. The disadvantages are, well, first of all, you have to send more things to the moon from time to time, which can be expensive. And of course, you've compromised the entire idea of true self-replicating von Neumann machines. In any case, the paper was a very fun and very insightful read. I mean, who knows, maybe someday all of this will be actually relevant. All right, now let's talk about something fun. Another book. This time it's purely sci-fi, so we don't have to concern ourselves with practical limitations of current technologies. So I wanted to talk about We Are Legion, We Are Bob, a novel by Dennis E. Taylor published in 2016. Now, it's hard to spoil what happens in the novel since presumably you'd be reading it in the first place because of your interest in the premise. But if you absolutely want no spoilers, go ahead and jump to time code 3138. So the protagonist of the novel is a modern day man named Bob who is a successful software millionaire. Bob arranges for his head to be cryogenically frozen upon his death. Now, he's not actually expecting to die anytime soon, but he does want to have at least a theoretical chance of extending his lifespan contingent on some hypothetical future technologies that can revive frozen heads and frozen bodies. So naturally, he is almost immediately killed in a car accident. Now that is irony! The company that he contracted for cryogenics holds up their end of the bargain and freezes his head as promised. Fast forward to over a hundred years later, Bob wakes up as an uploaded mind. His original biological brain was scanned and uploaded into a computer. He is under the control of a government agency that is building a von Neumann probe that will be sent into space. There is kind of a space race happening between several factions on Earth, with various national blocs competing to get the first such probe into space. The intent is to control such a probe with an uploaded human mind, if a suitable candidate can be found. The problem is that not all minds can accept the reality of being instantiated as an uploaded consciousness. Many have actually gone insane in the process. But Bob seems to be up for the task, if he agrees. Otherwise, his mind will be discarded. Naturally, Bob does agree, and his mind is blasted into space aboard a very sophisticated spaceship. What happens from here, I will leave up to you to read for yourselves. The author throws pretty much every sci-fi trope and idea at you in a very rapid succession. And of course, being a von Neumann probe means that Bob creates many copies of himself, the ship itself as well as Bob's mind that controls it. These copies begin to spread around the immediate galactic neighborhood of the solar system, but they're not exactly alone. The book is a really fun read, and it spawns several sequels that follow Bob's exploits in the universe. It's a, it's a really fun read. I, I really recommend it. 
What are your thoughts on the feasibility of such technologies? Is it possible at all? Is it possible in the far future? How about in the near future? Will we see anything that approaches the criteria of a von Neumann probe? Please email me at thebeyondpod at gmail.com. I would love to hear what you think on the subject. Meanwhile, I'll be quite content watching my 3D printer as it takes over two hours to print some plastic thingamajig that weighs 15 grams. Small moves, Ellie. Small moves. Meanwhile, thank you so much for listening. The transcript of this episode is available at thebeyondpod.com. See you all soon. Goodbye.